I don't know if they uh, still do this, but there used to be a time when they were training pilots for the Air Force that they would put them through this test so they could warn them about the dangers of hypoxia, you know, lack of oxygen to the brain. If you don't keep that oxygen mask on, you're not going to think clearly and be able to keep that plane up in the air. So this is what they would do to get that point across. They would take this young pilot and they would put him in a simulator where they could simulate conditions that are similar to what it's like flying that jet way up in the air. And as the young pilot's going through these various maneuvers, his partner, who would be sitting in that simulator with him, would at one point say, hey, take a break, I'll handle the controls, you do this. And he would hand that young pilot a piece of paper. And he said, just take a moment and fill it out. And oh, by the way, why don't you take that oxygen mask off? Uh, it might be easier to see the paper without that obstruction on your face. So the young pilot would take the oxygen mask off of his face and begin to fill out the form. Well, about a minute later, because that's all it would take, about a minute later, his partner would say, hey, put the mask back on and take a look at what you've just written. See if it makes any sense to you. And of course, the young pilot would be shocked. He'd put that oxygen mask on and see his handwriting was not legible at all. It was just a bunch of chicken scratch. His words were not actually words. He was just writing a bunch of gobbledygook. And suddenly, that young pilot realizes that without that supply of oxygen, if that mask is not on, his mind is not functioning properly. So it's through that experience that young pilot learns this valuable lesson that without that constant supply of oxygen, you don't think clearly. You lose your sense of judgment. You're no longer fit to fly that plane. I think that's the kind of lesson that Mark's trying to get across when he writes this book, when he tells the story of Jesus. We cannot allow ourselves to get disconnected from the breath of life, the life that God alone can breathe into us. We cannot afford to break this pipeline that we have to God's wisdom because if we do, we begin to lose our sense of judgment, our sense of spiritual consciousness. We've got to keep this oxygen mask on if we want to be able to see Jesus clearly and really understand what it means to follow him. Now this morning, I want you to consider how that lesson is taught in this scripture. So look at this with me. We're going to start with Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. Here is Jesus, and he is beginning his public ministry. And I want you to listen to what he says. Listen to how he describes that ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, the time, the time has come. What kind of a time are we talking about? See, in the Bible, the Bible used two different kinds of words to describe two different kinds of time. Sometimes the Bible used the word chronos, means time according to what the clock says, time according to the date on the calendar. This is what Luke does when he tells the story of Jesus. You get to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and Luke will say, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, when Herod was tetrarch, or ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip was the ruler or tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Licinius was the tetrarch or the ruler of Abilene, and during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. It gives us all these names and dates because this is Luke's way of saying, at this specific time and in this specific place, check the records. These are historical facts. I want you to know I'm not writing a piece of fiction. Here are all these reference points so you can know for sure I'm telling you something that actually happened. That's chronos. Uh, time as it occurs in its chronological order. Time as it occurs according to the ticking of the clock or the date on the calendar. But Jesus uses a different word because he's emphasizing something different. He uses a word here for time. It's kairos. And what that word means, at this point in time, something decisive, something significant happens, so significant that from this moment on, everything's going to change. 
You know, remember back to November of 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall. The Cold War was over. Germany was no longer going to be divided between East and West. From this moment on, Germany would be a new nation with a new destiny. And why? Because something epic had occurred. The wall wasn't there anymore. It was one of those Kairos kind of moments. Or you think back to 9-11 and how previous to that moment, security, that wasn't that big of a deal to us because terrorism, that's something that always happened way over there in other parts of the world. But ever since 9-11 and those planes flew into the Twin Towers there in New York City, our whole world's been turned upside down. Now security really is a big deal, and you're reminded of that every time you have to go to the airport. 9-11 was one of those Kairos kind of moments. You see, whether it's something good or something bad, something monumental, something colossal has occurred, and we now realize life's not going to be the same anymore. We have stepped into a new era, a new chapter of history. So when Jesus talks about time that way, when he says the time has come, he means Something really significant is beginning to occur. Well, what's this epic event that he's talking about? Notice the next phrase. Jesus said, the time has come because the kingdom of God has come near. And what he means is the king, Jesus, is now on the scene. He's ready to go public. He is now ready in a public way to exercise his authority. And you'll begin to see how that happens in the rest of Mark chapter 1 and on into Mark chapter 2 as he begins to heal the sick and cast out demons and dramatic things begin to happen and life begins to change because now the king is on the scene. And so the question becomes, how do you respond to that authority? Will you willingly surrender the authority of Jesus so you can be blessed by his leadership in your life? Or will you reject that authority and say, uh-uh, my life, my rules. I call the shots for myself. I don't want Jesus telling me what to do. I don't want Jesus to be a part of my life. Will you embrace his leadership or will you reject it? Well, if you choose to surrender to his authority so that Jesus actually becomes the king of your life, what exactly does that mean? How does that happen? Well, here's the key part of the verse, the last part. Jesus says, repent and believe. The good news, the good news about Jesus, what it is that makes him unique, the good news about the unique and really special things that he has done for us. You've got to repent and believe. And those two words, repent and believe, are written in a present tense, which means this is not just a one-time deal. This is something you've got to do again and again and again. This is something you've got to do every single day of your life. So it's really important for us to understand, so what exactly is Jesus calling us to do when he says, repent, believe. You know, words are kind of funny. If you don't hear them in the right context, you could easily misunderstand what's being said. For example, if you heard me say, it's a bomb, <laughs> immediately you might be alarmed until you see I'm sitting at a football game when I made that statement. And as I'm talking about it's a bomb, I'm describing the last play of the game and how the quarterback drops back and he makes this long pass. And if it's caught, our team could win the game. So once you understand the context, when I say it's a bomb, you realize I'm not talking about something bad. I'm talking about something good. Here's a reason to stand up and get excited. Hey, if he'll catch this, we're going to win. But if I'm standing in an airport and I hear somebody shout, it's a bomb. Now we've got a reason to panic. Head for the exits. Get out of there as quickly as possible. Because now we're talking about something destructive. We're talking about this explosive device that could bring the whole place down. You see, knowing where you are, when those words are spoken, makes all the difference in the world in how you understand those words. Or if you hear me say, hey, here's my key, and you see that I'm standing in front of a door, now you know I'm talking about that little piece of metal, this device that will unlock the door and give me access to something that I couldn't get into by myself. 
But if you see that I'm sitting down on a piano bench when I say, here's my key, now you know I'm talking about something completely different. Now I'm talking about music. Now here's my key. Now I'm saying, here's what I need to be able to sing that song. Knowing where you are when the words are spoken makes all the difference in the world and how you understand those words. So when Jesus said, repent and believe, how did the people back in that first century world hear that? And do we hear those words differently today? I'm afraid we do. I mean, I got to be honest. When I hear that word, repent, here's the image that comes to my mind. I think back to that time when I was eight years old and my uncle took me to Times Square in New York City and for the first time ever, I saw one of those street preachers yelling and screaming to the crowds, repent or you're going to burn in hell. And when I heard that word, it scared me. I didn't hear something warm and inviting, something to draw me in. I heard something intimidating and frightening, something that made me want to pull back. I don't think that's how people heard that word when Jesus spoke it. Gordon MacDonald says in the ancient world of the Middle East, that word repent originally was not a religious word at all. Originally, it was just a word for giving directions. Back in that day and time, they didn't have very many good roads. And what few good roads they had, most of them had no lights, no signs. And most people in that day and time had no maps to go by. So getting lost was a pretty frequent occurrence. And here you are walking around in circles and getting more and more frustrated. And saying, man, this isn't getting me anywhere. I need some help. And so you see this farmer standing over there in the field and say, hey, can you help me out? I'm trying to get to, and I'm not sure how to get there. You ever been there before? Yeah, I can tell you how to get there. And he'll use the word repent, meaning you're not going to get there on this road. You need to turn around and take this road, and this will get you to where you're supposed to be. You see, the word repent would automatically put a smile on your face. It was almost like with the word repent, somebody was putting a map in your hands and saying, here's the right track so that you can reach the right destination. In fact... Let me give you an actual example of how this expression, repent and believe, was used in the first century world in a non-religious setting. In the year 66 AD, which is about 35 years after this moment that we're reading about here in Mark chapter 1, the year 66 AD, there was this young army commander by the name of Josephus. He was a Jewish man, and he'd been sent on a mission by his commanding officers to head up to the northern part of Israel, Galilee, because there in the year 66 AD, there were a bunch of these rebel leaders who were stirring up all kinds of trouble, a bunch of hotheads who were trying to get everybody to revolt against the Roman Empire. And yet everybody else in Israel could tell that their plan for carrying out this revolt would be a disaster. Rather than making everything better for the nation of Israel, it would just make everything worse because those rebel leaders were not thinking clearly. They were not acting right. So, Josephus, you've got to go up there and calm them down. You've got to talk some sense into them before we find ourselves in a war that we can't possibly win. You've got to let them know we've got a better way of handling our grievances. So the year 66 AD, Josephus goes up there and he sits down and talks with the rebel leaders, trying to let them know, basically trying to tell them, hey, guys, you've got to give up your ideas, your plans, because they're not going to work, and trust me, because I've got a better plan. I've got a better way to get us out of this mess. I've got a plan that will lead us to a better result. And the words that Josephus used to communicate that were metanoia kai pistuo, the same words that Jesus is using here, repent and believe. Now, Mark, Mark says, hey, just to make sure you really understand what Jesus is talking about, so we all get the message, he says, let me give you some illustrations of what we're talking about. So verses 16, 17, and 18, he says, here's what it meant for Simon Peter and his brother Andrew to repent and believe. And then in verses 19 and 20, he says, here's what it meant for James and his brother John to repent and believe. Look at the pictures. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon 
That's the name he was born with. That was the most popular name for Jewish boys in first century Israel. But Jesus is also going to give them another name, Peter, because he wants to signify the change he's going to bring about in this man's life. So Simon Peter, that's the guy we're talking about here. When Jesus saw Simon Peter and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Now get this. They're not doing anything bad. They're not doing anything wrong. I say that because normally when the Bible uses the word repent, it means turn away from that which is bad and turn to that which is good. Turn away from your life of sin and turn to the Lord. It's what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 15 when he told us that story. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? Here's this young man and he leaves home. Something that's really good, but he leaves it. And he heads to the far country, a bad place to be. And sure enough, in this environment, he gets himself in all kinds of trouble. I mean, he lives foolishly, recklessly. He wastes and squanders everything he's got until finally he winds up in the stench of a pig pen, which for a Jewish person, that's as low as you can possibly get. And it's there in the pig pen that the Bible says he finally comes to his senses. He wakes up, man, what am I doing here? I don't belong here. This is not where I'm supposed to be. I need to go back home. I need to return to the Father because he's the only one who actually cares about me. And he's the only one who can actually make things right for me. Normally, that's what the Bible means when it uses the word repent. Turn from that which is bad to that which is good. Turn away from your life of sin. Turn to the Lord. But notice what we're reading here. Simon, Peter, Andrew, these are good men doing good things. Here are two businessmen who are working hard to earn a living and provide for their families. They're not doing anything wrong. So when Jesus says repent, repent of what? Well, Jesus is basically going to be saying, yeah, you know, you guys, you're doing some good things right now, but I've got even something bigger in mind for you. I want to place an even higher calling upon your life. So look at how he spells that out in verse 17. Jesus says, come follow me. And that word follow, it's, it's, it's Mark's favorite word for discipleship. It's a word that literally means fall in line. You intentionally put yourself behind somebody else so that you can let them take the lead, so you can learn from them and trust that they have a better way to go. Jesus says, come follow me, and I will send you out. And it has a sense I'm going to equip you. And be patient with this because it's going to take a while. You're not going to get this down pat real quick. It's going to take a while. But eventually, I'll get you to the place where you will be equipped and I'll be able to send you out and not just fish for fish, but fish for people. And watch how they respond. Verse 18, immediately, at once, Simon, Peter, and Andrew drop the nets. They repent. They leave the nets. And now they believe they begin to follow Jesus. In other words, their main mission in life now from this moment on is no longer to fish. Their main mission in life is to follow Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. As you read on in the book of Mark, you're going to see from time to time that how Simon, Peter, and Andrew come back to the Sea of Galilee. You'll find them back in those fishing boats. They're still going to fish again. Only this time, when they're in the fishing boat, they're not just there to make money and pay bills. No, their aim, their goal is different. Now they're in that fishing boat to live for Jesus. They're not just there to catch fish. They're there to fish for the hearts of people, the hired men that they work with, the people they sell that fish there to. They are there to be disciples who make disciples. Mark says, just in case you didn't catch that, let's go over that again. Let me give you a different illustration. Here's what repenting and believing in Jesus meant for James and his brother John. Look at verse 19. When Jesus had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. And without delay, he places a calling on them. I know what you're doing is fine, but I got something more in mind for you too. Will you respond? 
So Jesus called them, and immediately, again, they repent. They leave. They leave some things behind. They left their father. They leave the boat. They leave the nets. They leave the hired men, and they now begin to follow Jesus. They leave something good, but only because Jesus had something bigger in mind for them. So think of it like this. Let's say here's this uh, executive, this vice president of a real large company. So here's a guy who makes a lot of money. And yet one day during the lunch break, he steps out of the building because it's really been a tough day at the office. and He just needs to get away from the stress for a while. So during his lunch break, he steps out of the building and he goes for a walk in the park. He just wants to be able to relax and unwind for a moment. But while he's out here taking a walk in the park, he notices a little boy drowning in a pond nearby. So immediately this man springs into action. Well, you know, he's got this fancy suit on. I mean, this this suit just cost tons and tons of money. Can't swim with this thing on. So in order to help that boy out, what does he do? He rips off the tie, whips off the suit jacket, just tosses that aside, jumps in the water to save the life of that drowning child. Now, do you see what he just did? He discarded something good, something nice, really nice, that really nice, that really fancy suit, but he let that go. So now he could take hold of something much more precious and much more valuable the life of that child. Or think of it like this. Here's a little boy, and think about all the transitions that he's going to go through as he grows up. You know, one day you see the little boy, and he's out here in the backyard, and he's playing in the sandbox, and he's playing with his toy trucks. And at that point in his life, those toy trucks are just the greatest thing in the world. But then he turns six, and on his sixth birthday, that boy gets a brand new bicycle. Guess what? Bye-bye, toy trucks. He barely touches those things anymore. Why? Because now he's got something better to play with. That's the kind of transitions that we're talking about in this passage of Scripture here. Think about this. Jesus steps into the everyday life, the everyday world of Peter, Andrew, and James, and John. And he says, repent, believe. You know, turn away from this, turn to this. What is he asking? Here, here are these guys. They're not criminals. They're not slackers. They're not party animals. They're not even unbelievers. These are men, Jewish men, who their entire life have firmly believed in God. These are hardworking, church-going family men. These are men who right now are living good, decent lives. What in the world is Jesus asking them to repent of? They're not doing anything wrong, right? They're not doing anything wrong, but what they're doing is too small. So Jesus says, instead of just running a business, I want you to live on a mission. Instead of just making a living, I want you to make a difference. Which means later on when you watch Peter, Andrew, James, and John come back to those fishing boats, now when they're in that fishing boat, they're there with a different goal in mind. Again, they're not there to make money and pay bills. They're not there just to fish for fish. On that day, they're there to influence the people that they're working with. They're there to live for Jesus. They're there on a mission for Jesus. They are there to be disciples who make disciples. Let me give you a present-day example. Carissa Smith is working really hard right now to get a doctor's degree in the field of psychology, but she also happens to be a brand new mom. Got a little baby girl, four months old. Her name is Tegan. So needless to say, Carissa Smith's life right now is pretty limited, other than being in the library where she's trying to do all this research so she can write the thesis and get that doctor's degree. Other than that, she's got to be taking care of the baby. So her life right now is very demanding, very draining. I mean, hardly any time at all just for herself and probably little time to even sleep and rest. In this kind of environment, how can Carissa Smith be a disciple who makes disciples? Well, here's how it worked out one day, in kind of a surprising way. One day, Carissa is in the library trying to find some books that she can check out and take back home so that when her baby does lay down for a nap, maybe she can have a little time to read and do some research. 
But while she's looking for the right books to pull off the shelf, she's holding a little baby girl. And remember, they're in a library, and her little baby girl that day is just kind of babbling away in her own happy way and getting a little too noisy. And the library is supposed to be quiet. Well, there happened to be an older man standing nearby who was getting really annoyed with Carissa's baby and all the sounds she's making. He kept going, shh, shh, shh. And Carissa was just lost in this world of books and didn't seem to hear him. And, and of course, the baby girl didn't seem to hear him. So finally, with a stern look in his face and a stern tone of his voice, he just spoke out loud and told Carissa, he said, if you don't tell your child to shut up, I will. Well, Carissa did not take that very well. <laughs> All her mother bear qualities began to rise up in her heart and doing her very best to restrain herself. But yet with a firm voice, she says, hey, I'm very sorry for whatever occurred in your life to make you upset with my baby, my happy baby. But I'm not about to tell my child to shut up, and I am not about to let you do it either. Well, as soon as those words came flying out of her mouth, Carissa feels this twinge of guilt and thought, whoo, I came on a little too strong. I'm not sure that's how Jesus would have handled this situation. So immediately in her heart, she lifts up this prayer and she says, Jesus, help me. Make me a blessing to this man, not a curse. Well, immediately you can see her words, her strong words, convicted that man. He looked down. He took a breath and said, you're right. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I was out of bounds. I shouldn't have said that and especially said it that way. I apologize. Would you forgive me? And Carissa said, yes. Now, at that moment, Carissa could have just settled. I mean, problem solved, apology accepted. You go your way. I'll go my way, and we won't bother each other anymore. And it would have been fine. But that day, Carissa could sense that Jesus didn't want her to just settle for something that's fine and okay. No, that day, Jesus wanted to lead her to something more. See, Carissa noticed the older man, he didn't move away. He just kind of stood there staring at her baby girl, and tears began to form in his eyes. And then she could hear him whisper, I lost my son when he's only two months old. And then he got all choked up, and he couldn't talk anymore. So Carissa reached out and put her hand on his shoulder and said, hey, tell me about it. Here, let's sit down at this table. Let's talk about this. What exactly happened to your son? So the two of them sat down, and the man said he died of SIDS, just two months old, died of SIDS. This was 50 years ago. I never got over it. I was so angry about what happened. It broke up my marriage, ruined my career. I've been all alone ever since. And Carissa says, well, tell me about your son. What was your boy like? And for the next 30 minutes, that man just opened up and just kind of poured out his whole life story. And finally, 30 minutes later, she said, wow, wow, I haven't talked like that in a long time because nobody else has ever actually been interested. You were. Hey, do you mind? Could I hold your little daughter? Chris said, sure. So she took a little Tegan and put, put her in the older man's lap. And he just gently wrapped his arms around her, laid his cheek against her head, and just hugged her for a while. And he passed her back. He said, thank you. Thank you. You don't know how much you helped me today. Do you see, for a brief moment, that older man caught a brief glimpse of what a new life and a new world could actually be like, and all because Carissa Smith, in her own very limited way, was being a disciple who makes disciples. That day in the library, she wasn't just looking for books. No, she was living on a mission for Jesus. I don't know about you, but I find this passage of Scripture to be so challenging. I mean, when Jesus steps into my everyday world and says, David, drop the nets and follow me, what exactly is he calling for? Could it be that some days he sees me doing some things, hey, David, you're not doing anything wrong, but you, I mean, what you're doing is fine, but don't just settle for this when I've got something more in mind for you. More of what? I'll give you three quick examples, and we'll stop. 
you know, some days you come home from work and you're really tired and drained, rightfully so. You've worked really well, worked really hard, but boy, you just need to relax and unwind. So you want to plop in the chair, get, get a bite to eat, and turn on the TV. I don't want to have to think anymore. And that night when you're watching the TV, you're not watching anything bad. You know, maybe you're watching a Pacers game or maybe you're watching an old movie that just makes you laugh. We all need moments like that, and that's perfectly fine. But to do that every night of the week, could it be that some nights that you will feel God tugging on your heart and say, hey, David, <laughs> rather than just mindlessly sitting there and watching TV again tonight, how about tonight you turn off the TV and go play a game with your grandkids? Or how about tonight you turn off the TV and just engage in a meaningful conversation with your wife? Are there times when I'm ready to settle for something fine and okay, and yet Jesus is hoping for something more? Second example, Exodus chapter 3. You see Moses, he's out in the desert. He's watching the sheep for his father-in-law. So he's doing something really good. But on this particular day, God has something more in mind for him. Moses spots this little bush out here, and it's on fire, and yet it's not being consumed. And Moses thinks, wow, that's kind of a strange sight. Maybe I should check it out. And so that day, rather than just settling for something good, watching the sheep, he decides to turn, repent, and move in a different direction. And the Bible says, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4, when God saw that Moses was willing to turn, that he was willing to check things out, that's when God himself came down and began to talk to Moses. And from that moment on, he forever changed the direction of his life. Wouldn't it have been a tragedy if Moses had missed that moment, if he just settled for something good instead of turning to something more? How many days does that happen to me? How many days do I allow my schedule to get too busy and I'm always in a hurry to get to the next thing and, and what suffers is my time, my personal time with God. I mean, my devotions become like a, a quick trip to the fast food restaurant. You come through the drive-thru, you grab the burger and you hurry off, gulp the food down because you're in a hurry to get to the next thing and you never properly digest the food. You never take the time to enjoy what you're actually eating. How many times do we treat God like that? Oh, okay, i got to do my devotion. So we open up the Word and quick 15-minute read, just kind of skim the service and never really go deep and just throw up a quick 30-second prayer and, hey, I did my God thing, and now I'm off to the next thing. And yet, how many times was God hoping for something deeper and a little more thorough? You know, maybe it's time to actually get plugged into a discipleship group where at least once a week, you can get together with some really good Christian friends, people you love and admire, people that you know care about you, and together as friends, you just put life on pause for a moment. And together you sit down and you open up the Word and you open up your heart and say, God, got to be honest, I've been ignoring a lot of issues down here. I've been trying to put a Band-Aid on things, and that doesn't work. I need surgery on my soul. Here's one last analogy. Isn't it interesting how every child's life begins the same way? They begin, the child, they begin their growth and development in the womb of their mother. They begin life in a place that is safe and warm and comfortable. And that's by God's design. But it's also God's design that at nine months, that stage comes to an end. Because if that child's going to be all that God hopes for them, what he wants for them to be, they cannot remain in the womb. There comes a point in time they've got to leave the womb and move on to something more. And yet leaving the womb can be painful. It can be messy. It can be scary. And yet if that child is to see and experience and enjoy all that God has in mind for them, they cannot just settle for something easy and comfortable. 
It's time to move on to something more. So when Jesus steps into your life and into mine, like he did with Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he says, drop the nets and follow me. What exactly is he calling us to do? Could it be sometimes he sees us settling for something nice and okay, something easy and comfortable when he wants something so much more? And will we really answer the call and repent and believe? Will we really give up our way of doing things and trust that Jesus has something much, much better? mind for us. Let's pray.